patients at risk, a discussion of the dangers that patients face when physicians are replaced with non-physician practitioners. I'm your host, Dr. Rebecca Bernard, and the co-author of the book, Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. As our listeners know by now, to be licensed to practice medicine, physicians in most states must complete a minimum of three years of postgraduate medical education called residency training. Each specialty offers its own residency program, but all must follow specific standardized criteria. And those are created by the ACGME. And if programs fail to meet the criteria that are laid out by the ACGME, they won't be credentialed and graduates will not be able to practice medicine. So recently, the ACGME announced revisions to residency training for family physicians. I'm privileged to be joined today by two family physicians to discuss these proposed changes. Dr. Mark Huntington is the director of the Center for Family Medicine at the South Dakota Sanford School of Medicine. And Dr. Rishi Patel is a family physician and relatively recent graduate of residency training. Welcome both of you to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mark, can you start us out by talking a little bit about your background and how you came to become a program director for a family medicine residency program? Sure. So I've always had a a passion for care of the underserved. That's what drew me into medicine in the first place, the opportunity to provide care to those who who don't get it otherwise, and especially in rural areas and globally uh, as well. And so I've I've been involved in that uh, for about eight years. I was in a rural practice and also active in uh, doing global medical work and medical education abroad. One day I got a, a, a call from the residency program down in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. They were teaching a, an advanced life support and obstetrics course. My name was on a list of certified instructors and asked if I would come down and, and teach it. And so I did. And after a couple of years of doing that, they said, well, you know, we've got this full-time faculty position open. Are you interested? I said, not remotely. Thanks. I'm happy where I'm at. Uh, but they were persistent. Eventually I came and took a look at it and it fit far better than I was expecting. I loved my rural practice. Um, it was it was. Fast fabulous, full spectrum family medicine, but what an opportunity to be able to help shape the next generation of family docs and uh, send them off into the uh, underserved areas, a chance to really be a force multiplier in that uh, in that respect. And I, I was here uh, long enough that the uh, program director of 34 years eventually retired and um, the uh, board of directors uh, appointed me as the uh, program director. And so I've been the program director now for seven years. Wow. That is so exciting. And you have to give credit to the tenacity of the people that recruited you because, you know, leaving private practice to take on this new role. I mean, that's a really big step. And, and I agree with you. I think you're really making a difference in so many people's lives by training young family physicians. So thank you for that. Rishi, tell us about your journey. Sure. So like you said, I recently graduated. That was in 2019 from Family Medicine Residency. Then I started my own private practice and uh, went directly into it. No, not many people do that nowadays. But here in Florida, that is still a option. That is still a window that, you know, up, up opportunities. So I was able to take steps into that direction. You know, thanks to a lot of mentors and a lot of encouragement from a lot of my teachers and mentors. So that's how I ended up here. Recently graduated, so 2019. However, there are a lot of programs, teaching programs in this area, multiple medical schools here as well. So have been involved in teaching the residents when I'm in the hospital, sometimes surrounding with them and taking on uh, medical students in my office and whatnot. So I've been kind of recently graduate, but I've kept my ears to the ground to understand what's going on, what is changing, what their challenges are, and just give 
like Dr. Huntington said, just give a little bit of our own experience to the new generations to hopefully shape them in the in a strong direction. I think that's that's our goal: make them stronger than we are. I just want to say how proud I am of you for uh, opening your own practice and not sort of settling for employed practice, which now more physicians are entering into employed practice than open their own practice. Uh, I did that for many years before I opened my own practice before I was brave enough. So I applaud you for doing that so early on. And maybe in the future, I can bring you on a show just to talk about that and give some advice to residents or medical students that are wondering if they could do something like that. Absolutely. We'll be happy to. Great. Well, it's exciting because so we have a relatively recent grad. We have a residency director and I'm a family medicine graduate too. Now, I just realized that I'll be celebrating my 20th anniversary from graduating residency in June, which is hard to believe already 20 years. So it's exciting to have, I think, three different perspectives on these proposed changes. So you guys have both seen them, and I wanted to go through some of the pertinent or more potentially concerning changes in the recommendations. Now, one of the biggest issues that other doctors have brought to me when they suggested we talk about this is that there was the removal of the word physician from the core faculty requirement. So the original wording said, all programs must have family medicine physician members. And now they took out physician and it says, all programs must have family medicine faculty members. Mark, what do you think this change represents? Well, a a couple of things. One is uh, certainly uh, family medicine is a it's a board certified specialty. And so I'm less worried about in this particular case where they remove the the physician because that's defined elsewhere um, in in the uh, requirements. Uh, For years, we've in family medicine, we do a lot of different things. And so we we tap into a variety of other areas to help equip us to provide the good care that, that we provide. And so uh, we've we've had behavioral health uh, psychologist as part of a family medicine uh, requirement on faculty for quite a few years. They weren't they weren't allowed to be called core faculty, but they were there. They were essential. They were required. And so I I, I don't know that this particular change is a huge one from my perspective. At our program, uh, we we have a PhD psychologist working with us. We also have a PharmD working with us. So we have non-physician faculty who are very valuable, but we also have uh, quite a few family physicians as part of our faculty who are are full-time employed by us. Yeah, it sounds like they're trying to be a little more inclusive. I guess what some doctors worry about is recently we've seen on applications for medical students during their interviews, we kind of got some uh, some secret information passed to us by someone who gave the interviews. And one of the questions that they asked medical students was they had to provide us, they had to answer a scenario in which a patient asked to see a physician. And the correct answer for the medical student applicant was to explain why physicians weren't the be all end all and that there are other very important members of the team. And it almost seemed like they were kind of trying to groom this sort of, I don't want to say propaganda, but what do you think, Rishi? Did, did you have any concerns when you saw that physician was removed? Not per se, because I believe, you know, uh, Dr. Huntington said that they have already been part of the integral education, which obviously we need, you know, not, we don't learn everything in medical school and not every doctor or physician can teach that, you know, their perspectives. The reason I think they did it was just to make it inclusive in the way, in the sense that that cannot be a reason to exclude someone just because you're not a family medicine physician, you cannot be part of the faculty, what yeah. have you. That's, that was my take on it. 
That makes sense. Uh, I mean, we definitely had non-physician faculty members. We had a PharmD who was amazing. We had fantastic psychologists and they were really instrumental to our training rounded with us and in our outpatient clinic. So I hear what you're saying. uh Now, what about when it comes to non-physician practitioners like um, nurse practitioners and physician assistants? We know that they are essential members of the team. But Mark, what are what is their role in actually teaching residents? Do they have a role in that? So for uh, some of them, I think there is a potentially very valuable role. What comes to mind for me would be uh, nurse uh, nurse midwives. Uh, to be honest, their approach to the care of maternity deliveries, postpartum care, the patient centered care is actually closer to our perspective than the obstetricians are. And to allow obstetricians to be involved in the training of our residents, I'm happy to be able to say that we can do use nurse practitioners now. Ideally, it would be family docs. But to get a variety of perspectives, I I think there's a real advantage to that. Um, As far as as other uh, nurse practitioners and PAs, there's a a big difference between the training of a family physician and a training of of an advanced practice clinician. And that that has to do with um, really being able to think outside the box. APPs are really well-trained to follow an algorithm and do it consistently and repeatedly. That's what their training does. And it, it helps raise the, uh, the care to a certain level. As physicians, you know, those basic science years that we learned how everything works is actually really important because it helps us think outside the box. So when that algorithm fails us, we know what to do next. We can figure out not just what to do, but why. And that's especially important in the case of multiple morbidities. You know, renal failure, oh, we need to give them more fluid, but they also have heart failure. We need to give them less fluid. How do you figure it out? The algorithm won't help you. That's where a physician's training really comes into play. And if you're taking care of sick people, you really do need a physician for that. And um I, I think that's a unique aspect about uh, physician training. And, and especially in the U.S., some of our graduates who come from overseas really have some challenges in residency because they didn't have the same basic science background. Now, they can get it, but it, it, it's, you know, for, for uh, APPs, that's just not part of their training. Yeah, I think what you're saying makes perfect sense. And of course, you know, I always want physicians to be trained by other physicians. But, you know, unfortunately, we're hearing stories from residents and medical students that part of their training, especially in hospital rounds, they're actually being mentored and precepted by nurse practitioners and PAs. Rishi, did you experience any of that in your training or have you heard anything like that from your peers? Definitely. So while I was going through residency, I did not have much of that. Uh, thankfully, all of our training was from physicians. However, as the years have gone by and different programs that I've heard this from, the most definitely uh, one of the biggest challenges ha- happens in the ICU, seems like overnight or a lot of times it's run by the NPs and PAs. Now, say central line needs to be put in or some of these more procedures that need to be done are now being supervised by the nurse practitioners or taught by them. And again, yes, it's part of the algorithm. Yes, everyone hopefully will turn out successfully, but never does, rarely does, even intubations. Some things that just doesn't work. And it's always good to have someone that has not just training, but a lot of experience doing it. And that can help explain why this did not work and why we need to you know, adjust our approach and whatnot. So 
Yes, a lot of people have I've heard that significantly. Another challenge it seems to be the pediatricians in the family medicine training or in the just you know medical school training, for example. <laughs> uh, recently from one of the medical students that I was rotate that's rotating with me was their whole pediatric rotation was done by NP. I don't know how a medical school can make that work. They were aware of this, but it flew and it continues to fly. And moreover, they are also, you know, representing themselves as physicians. They say, hey, I'm doctor, blah, blah, blah. And again, you know, this is what the medical students and they have kind of experienced because they're shadowing them essentially at this point. But it's, I think, lack of physicians that can teach, lack of, again, it's all voluntary positions. So I believe that is what leads to this growth of non-physicians teaching future physicians. Not all right, not all wrong, but just something that needs to be standardized, I would recommend, or I would assume. Um, I believe it probably was and has kind of adjusted as the, you know, the the needs have changed and as the supply and demand of physicians have changed. Mark and I kind of cr- both cringed when you were talking about those experiences. I'm sure that that's not something that flies in the, with the ACGME, would you say, Mark, to have uh, medical students being taught by NPs? Well, the the ACGME doesn't address medical students, just residents. Ah. Uh, but yes, that that would be something that that uh, we to work with NPs and PAs is different than having them be the preceptors. And in fact, up until recently, uh, with these proposed changes, for example, the nurse midwives could not be the supervisor for a resident. It was against the against the regulations. And so in, in that particular unique case, I think it's reasonable. And a lot of others, I don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, I think you're right on that. Let's move into the next uh, concept that's discussed. And that's behavioral health. Now, I have some feelings about the word behavioral health. It seems like that's the new mantra for mental health or psychiatric care. I mean, what are your thoughts on that, Mark? Do you, I mean, I guess I kind of feel like it almost seems like they're saying that mental health is something that a person can control or that they, it's a choice that they're making. And now maybe sometimes with certain choices, but not when it comes to bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. I mean, what do you think about that? I noticed that ACGME yeah. used behavioral health all the way through. Yeah, so I I think of it as conditions that are reflected in the behavior, not necessarily behavioral choices. So I, again, I for me that's not a I I can use that and mental health very much interchangeably. But some of some behavioral health, some mental health is very amenable to things such as cognitive behavioral therapy. Some of it requires pharmacotherapy. And I I think we really fail if we only emphasize one or the other to the the neglect of of the the counterpart. Both, Both aspects of it need to be part of our training, especially as family physicians. In my rural practice, um, as you know, uh, nationwide, probably 80% of all mental health is cared for by family doctors, by the primary care physician. And so in a rural community where psychiatrists were many hours drive away, I, I was it and my partners. And so uh, we needed to be comfortable managing psychotropic medications. We had local counselors available to help with that aspect of things, although as family docs, we can do that too. But uh, to to be comfortable managing and, and prescribing some of the, the high horsepower psychiatric drugs is something that family docs need to know. Yeah, I would say that psychiatric care, mental health care is a, such a huge part of my practice. It must touch on almost every single issue that a patient has when they come into the office. There is a relationship. And I think the training is so important 
So to that end, one of the things I saw in the guidelines is that the mental health or behavioral health people that are training can be either a psychologist or a licensed clinical social worker. Now that's there there's a that's what it says in the in the in the paperwork and there's a big 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 difference in the two and my psychology friends kind of feel about uh, social work in kind of the way that I feel about nurse practitioners and PAs that they have a place but it's a to- totally different training. So what are what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I would be I would be concerned about that definitely. We have the advantage in in that we have a really a top notch mental health professional uh, PhD level training. That's the appropriate person to do the training for physicians. I think again, the others are very valuable in providing care, providing some perspective. But if if that's what your what your education is founded on, it's a little a little weaker than it needs. It's going to have be. some gaps, I would think. Now, Rishi, tell me about what kind of psychiatric training you got in your residency. Very minimalistic, to be honest. And I think that's partially probably why all of this is moving in that direction is they are not able to fill these strict rules, which again, the rules are strict to keep quality at a certain level. They're not able to fulfill it. Therefore, giving it with, uh, they're loosening the rules to allow whoever is available to give whatever kind of education or training that they can give just so they can fill in the blank saying, yes, it was done or check mark the box saying, hey, it was done. Mine was very poor. I feel mm-hmm. very, absolutely not, you know, I could not use the high power drugs that, you know, Dr. Huntington is talking about without consulting a reading up, you know, 10, 10 or 20 different times, just making sure I'm not making a mistake. I mean, don't you think Dr. Huntington and Rishi that there should be a core psychiatry rotation and not just a behavioral health because the residents that I, that rotate with me now, they come in to my DPC practice and they tell me that they don't have any psychiatry and I didn't have any in my residency. And my goodness, like you said, if you're in a rural area or even a, a, an urban area with a lack of access to psychi- psychiatry, a family doctor needs to be comfortable with thinking a little bit more than just depression, anxiety. We sometimes have to think about bipolar disorder and manage other uh, more serious mental health problems. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I was really fortunate in the residency that I attended. Uh, there was actually, it was a combined family medicine psychiatry track there. And so some of my classmates were uh, pursuing a double board certification. And so we had a very strong mental health, including um, pharmacotherapy for psychiatric conditions as part of our residency training. In my the residency that I'm a director for, I We've been very fortunate in that uh, we have uh, good psychiatrists available locally who understand that many of our graduates are going out into areas where there is no psychiatric backup. And so uh, that that is a key part. Uh, and one of the strengths of our program is a behavioral health, and that includes management of psychotropic medications. So our, our goal is to train full-spectrum family medicine physicians, and that is one part of being full-spectrum. If I could go back in time, I would have looked for a double uh, family medicine psychiatry. And I really wonder why there are not more of them or some type of a fellowship track or additional training, just because we do have such a serious shortage of psychiatrists. I see a lot of patients referred to psychiatric mental health nurse practitioners who are required to complete 500 hours of clinical training and 100 hours with children, and yet they're providing these uh, this, these services to mentally ill children. And I think this is a role that family physicians really should be able to feel comfortable stepping into. Part of this, I think, was, we want to say it's not just treatment, just diagnosing, just because such an overlay and 
lack of knowledge, you end up making wrong diagnosis, wrong medications, not working, more frustration, more, you know, depression, anxiety, or, you know, magnification of the mental um, health issues would happen. So I agree, there has, there has to be a strong background. All colleges, be it internal medicine, family medicine, OB, surgery, what have you, they all have certain percentages that they think is important or part of that residency or part of that field. And I believe uh, mental health has never really been a big aspect of it, even though we see it in real life. And part that's probably why we only get one month of it in residency. And uh, that's that. enough to do the check mark. If exactly, that's enough to check mark the box. And if they can't provide that, then do whatever they can. I think you hit the nail on the head. My my program director and my family medicine program, who was amazing, I remember him giving me a talk when I first came in saying, family physicians are first and foremost diagnosticians. And that is really where we earn our keep because that is one of the hardest things to do is make a correct diagnosis. And everything depends on that correct diagnosis moving forward. So I think those are really good comments, Rishi. Let's move into some specific areas in which the ACGME has recommended decreasing certain number of hours in different aspects of training. So for pediatrics, it was required that residents complete 200 clinical hours or two months. That's been cut back to 100 hours and changed 250 encounters with acutely ill children in the hospital or ER to, quote, an experience. They also reduced inpatient visits from 75 to 50 children and ER, the pediatric ER visits from 75 to 50. So Mark, what are your thoughts when you see the, this decrease in the requirements for pediatric care? As you know, um, it's not just pediatrics that they've reduced from a requirement of a month to simply an experience. What is an experience? Is that that I shadow somebody for an afternoon? And it, it's really, that is extraordinarily concerning to me in the area of pediatrics and OB and critical care, really across the board, geriatric, surgery, all these areas that the new proposed guidelines have really stripped family medicine of, of the training that it needs. I don't know whether it's you know ignorance or arrogance or what, what uh, prompts it. These new guidelines will work very well, I suppose, in suburbia if you know, you're 20 minutes away from a major medical center and, and basically functioning at the level of a PA or nurse practitioner. But if you are starting to look into areas, the vast central part of our country, where there are these rural areas uh, that are a long distance from major referral centers, Basically, a third of our population lives there, and you're going to have somebody try to take care of them having just had an experience. Uh, that, that's absurd, especially in the context of the pandemic. We have been really amply demonstrated the incredible value of family medicine. So in Sioux Falls, which is a, a fairly small city by, by a lot of standards, during the peak of the uh, pandemic, when you, know, you look at the, the peak hospitalizations and critical care and deaths, they drafted the family physicians to come in and be part of the inpatient team. Even if they were officially hired by the health system to be an outpatient specialist, they were brought in and taking care of these very seriously ill patients. In many of our outlying communities, family docs were managing patients that they would have ordinarily shipped in because the hospitals were full and they needed to take care of them at their community. So if we're talking about our ready reserve of physician workforce, it's got to be family doctors who can then be called and activated to apply their training. Now, they, they may or may not have been very active in it, but they had 
meaningful training in it during their time. I had a colleague tell me, he said, I haven't, I did something that I haven't done in 28 years. He said, I needed to intubate and manage a vent patient for 72 hours by myself. He could do that because he had done it. And if we eliminate that and reduce it to an experience, which means shadowing somebody for a little while, we, we've really lost it. I and mean, we've kind of see, seen in a way how that, that didn't work with the virtual training that medical students get on their virtual rotations during the pandemic. They, they arrive in the actual real reality of the clinical situation and don't really know how to do things sometimes and have a pretty steep learning curve that used to occur in the third year of medical school is now occurring in their first year of residency. So for each of these areas, I think it's a terrible idea to reduce the training. You've just gutted the specialty. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I looked at the ICU training. They cut that back from a required 100 hours to, again, quote, participate in the care of patients hospitalized in a critical care setting. Now, Rishi, you do inpatient care, right? I, I do. mean, how do you feel about like just here's your training? You get to participate, whatever that means, in the care of an ICU patient. Absolutely dismal. At that point, you're not competent enough. You don't, not just the fact that you will not be able to take care of them. You will not be able to recognize mistakes that someone else may be making, you know, and we, we all make mistakes. And that's why we have teams like this to help each other see things and prevent things and fix things. But hundred percent, it, it's, you know, like we already said, it's kind of destroying the idea of family medicine. Person thought as far as the decreasing the hours is just so that they can keep these residencies open. They can allow them to graduate. Uh, so it keeps on paper family medicine resident, but in reality, we're no better than a, maybe a well-trained fourth year medical student. That's really sad. And, you know, I think one of the benefits to doing that intense training and those experiences is to teach us how to recognize a sick patient. I mean, you may not remember yes. exactly how to do the things that you did when you worked in the ICU, but you can look at a patient and say, this person is really sick and they need a higher level of care. And that's critically important. Absolutely. Um, and in fact, they reduced ER experience from two months to one month and decreased the number of patients. Uh, geriatrics went down uh, from 100 hours to another, quote, dedicated experience geriatrics, come on. We know that we have the, someone called it the silver tsunami coming up. How in the world, Dr. Huntington, are family physicians going to be able to take care of geriatric patients that are so complex with an experience? I completely agree with what you're saying. And and you know, our, our local subspecialists, and as you know, subspecialists are not always the biggest fans of family medicine, but our local mm -hmm. subspecialists have really gotten up in arms when they heard about these changes because they know what family medicine is capable of. They see our residents doing what they're doing, rotating with them, managing patients. They see our graduates properly caring for patients that they then transfer in. And they're envisioning this wave of badly managed patients arriving because family docs haven't been trained. And they're, they're very upset with this and, and uh, a bit of a groundswell locally among our subspecialists that uh, family medicine is getting cut off at the knees. And also they, their perception is that this is an, an effort to de-physicianize medicine. So it's not just us that's in the sites, they feel like they themselves are also in the sites of insurance companies, health organizations that would, would like a lower budget item than a physician. Wow. It's really, truly the dumbing down of American medicine. Mm -hmm. That is so frightening. 
They also cut surgery from a one month to an experience. Rishi, what happens when you don't get that experience with a surgeon? This is so such a stupid thing, you know, but the idea is if you don't know how to do certain surgery, if you haven't seen one, how are you going to explain to someone what's going to happen to them? I mean, all the specialists are busy. I mean, obviously they're swamped with work. We all know this. We are all swamped with work, no doubt about it. But we usually in primary care are the ones to explain to the patients. We are the ones that, you know, at the end of the day, the buck stops with us. If there are questions, we help answer them. We at least, you know, alleviate some fears and what have you. Someone comes in and say, hey, they're going to do this, uh, you know, uh, lap coli. Okay, what does that mean? Well, they'll put holes here, holes here. And if you explain it, you know, without confidence, the patient will not have confidence in the procedure they're going to go through, confidence in the surgeon that's going to do the procedure, and or just the fact that they don't have confidence in their own healthcare. And we all know how important confidence and the mental aspect of any sort of medicine is. This is going to work for you. You're going to do well. You're going to walk tomorrow. And if they have the confidence, they will actually end up doing it. If they don't, they're going to be scared because you are you don't know what's going on. You give a crap answer. They don't have any confidence in you. They don't have confidence in themselves. And I don't think we help anyone in that sense. So as far as surgery goes, that would be the biggest thing. I think thing. you're so right. And, and I didn't even think about it in that respect of being able to explain to the patient what you, what will most likely it will happen. I was thinking more in terms of like recognizing appendicitis and things like that, but you're hundred percent right. Yeah. It's just understanding what more about what's going to happen and helping the patients understand. Absolutely. And diagnosis is for sure. Um, if you don't have a good experience with a surgeon, and like you said, appendicitis, not all appendicitis needs to be operated on. Now, if you have not worked with a surgeon that has taught you, hey, this is the difference between surgery now, surgery tomorrow, or it's okay, just do antibiotics and we'll see you outpatient if this happens again. So if you don't have this experience, to you, appendicitis book says surgery, or, you know, that, that's the standard of care, or whatever the board answer is, that's all, you know, and that's very, not medicine at that very, point. It's, you know, it's not. Yeah. Very good points. One of the things that concern me based on what my, I see a typical family medicine practice is that they cut orthopedics from 200 hours to, or two months to a dedicated experience. And that's supposed to include ortho and rheumatology. Now, are you kidding me? I would say 50% of my patients are coming with some type of musculoskeletal complaint. Dr. Huntington, what in the world is going on with this? Yeah. Again, from my my rural practice, I was uh, I was probably casting a fracture. I lived in a not an accident prone area, but it was agricultural, and certain things happened. I was probably casting uh, a, a fracture once to twice a week throughout my entire my entire time there. And if I'd only had a experience, I I would certainly not have felt comfortable doing it. And I certainly shouldn't have felt comfortable doing it because uh, we, we really need to make sure that family docs are well-trained for what they might encounter. Again, if, if we're training people to work in suburbia, in an outpatient, you know, mild, yeah, okay, that, I could understand that perhaps. But family medicine is, is really the backbone throughout the rural part of our country. And if we, if we got the specialty then we're going to have lots of bad outcomes because there are not proficient physicians out there. <laughs> Someday I'm going to be one of those patients. I want a good doctor to take care of me. That's what I say every single time. And I mean, the other thing that I think this does is just turn us into referral machines. You know, you see a low back pain, you send them to ortho. You see, a, I mean, that's ridiculous knowing that family doctors can manage at least 80% of what walks in the door with the proper training. 
We just have a couple of minutes left. And I just wanted to say one maybe positive thing, which is that they they took away all these different hours, but they replaced it by saying that you could have six months in electives or whatever. The, the, the idea is that the resident is supposed to create their own path uh, and follow their interests and what they want their practice to look like. Pros and cons of that? So the uh, the cynic in me says that uh, they were concerned that there might be programs that are still going to try and provide full scope training. And so they wanted to make sure we couldn't include such requirements by expanding the number of electives that were mandatory. Um, we, we already provide quite a few blocks of elective, but to mandate uh, more makes it pretty difficult to... Uh, if a program such as mine says we want to really train people and give them a surgical experience and a geriatric experience and a nice U experience for the practice that they're going into in our region, we can't do that. We can only suggest they take the elective. And and I, I on the one hand, I like the autonomy and the, the independence it gives them to, to tailor their curriculum. On the other hand, I, I'm very concerned that it will result in, in inferior training. Rishi, your thoughts? A hundred percent, just like that. There is, you know, one of my, my program directors said, easy residency, hard life, hard residency, easy life. And you really have to make of this training the best you can. And yes, if there are motivated residents, they will get it. Even if there are requirements, they will still learn more in the direction they want to go to. This kind of just brings a bar significantly down. And I think this is part of the generational things, um, you know, I'm lazy. I mean, I'll, you know, I'll admit it. If I could get away with, you know, just doing five instead of 10, I would. And, you know, it takes certain mind process and mentors to kind of guide you in that direction. And at the end of the day, like you guys have mentioned, is kind of cutting the programs and, you know, by the knees is dumbing down of all the physicians. Uh, one of the things that Dr. Huntington was saying was this may work in the areas closer to the cities, but even then it does not work because then all their specialists are swamped with things that they should not be bothered with. And the real health will you know, go by the sideways, which is, I think, one big issues with the NPs and PAs that we have discussed before has been because they're so algorithmic and if something does not work, the, the next step is a referral. And is this because it doesn't fit the algorithm doesn't mean it requires a specialist or a referral. But I think we're kind of becoming that dumbed down, if you will. And uh, I just hope the residents realize that this is, you know, in their hands and program directors and mentors really guide the residents in a direction where they can actually succeed. I think your lazy is different from the average person's lazy, but I want to thank both of you so much for your time. And uh, I'd love to talk with you again soon. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about this topic, I encourage you to get the book Patients at Risk, The Rise of the Nurse Practitioner and Physician Assistant in Healthcare. It's available at Amazon and at Barnes & Noble. And if you're a physician, I invite you to join our group, Physicians for Patient Protection. Our website is physiciansforpatientprotection.org. You can always send us an email at our website, patientsatrisk.com. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the next podcast. Mm -hmm.